0: Section 9 of Twain and Howells on each other. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. My Mark Twain, Literary Friends and Acquaintances by William Dean Howells. Chapter 8. I shall not try to give chronological order to my recollections of him, but since I am just now with him in Hartford, I will speak of him in association with the place. Once, when I came on from Cambridge, he followed me to my room to see that the water was not frozen in my bath, or something of the kind, for it was very cold weather, and then hospitality lingered. Not to lose time in banalities, I began at once from the thread of thought in my mind. I wonder why we hate the past so, and he responded from the depths of his own consciousness, It's so damned humiliating," which is what any man would say of his past if he were honest. But honest men are few when it comes to themselves. Clemens was one of the few, and the first of them among all the people I have known. I have known, I suppose, men as truthful, but not so promptly, so absolutely, so positively, so almost aggressively truthful. He could lie, of course, and did to save others from grief or harm. He was not stupidly truthful, but his first impulse was to say out the thing and everything that was in him. To those who can understand, it will not be contradictory of his sense of humiliation from the past that he was not ashamed for anything he ever did to the point of wishing to hide it. He could be, and he was, bitterly sorry for his errors, which he had enough of in his life, but he was not ashamed in that mean way. What he had done he owned to, good, bad, or indifferent, and if it was bad he was rather amused than troubled as to the effect in your mind. He would not obtrude the fact upon you, but if it were in the way of personal history he would not dream of withholding it far less of hiding it he was the readiest of men to allow an error if he were found in it in one of our walks about hartford when he was in the first fine flush of his agnosticism he declared that christianity had done nothing to improve morals and conditions and that the world under the highest pagan civilization was as well off as it was under the highest christian influences I happened to be fresh from the reading of Charles Loring Brace's Gasta Christi, or History of Humane Progress, and I could offer him abundant proofs that he was wrong. He did not like that, evidently, but he instantly gave way, saying he had not known those things. Later he was more tolerant in his denials of Christianity, but just then he was feeling his freedom from it and rejoicing in having broken what he felt to have been the shackles of belief worn so long he greatly admired robert ingersoll whom he called an angelic orator and regarded as an evangel of a new gospel the gospel of free thought he took the warmest interest in the newspaper controversy raging at the time as to the existence of a hell when the nose carried the day I suppose that no enemy of perdition was more pleased he still loved his old friend and pastor mr twichell but he no longer went to hear him preach his sage and beautiful sermons and was i think thereby the greater loser long before that i had asked him if he went regularly to church and he groaned out oh yes i go it most kills me but i go and i did not need his telling me to understand that he went because his wife wished it he did tell me after they both ceased to go that it had finally come to her saying well if you are to be lost i want to be lost with you he could accept that willingness for supreme sacrifice and exult in it because of the supreme truth as he sought after they had both ceased to be formal christians she was still grieved by his denial of immortality so grieved that he resolved upon one of those heroic lies which for love's sake he held above even the truth and he went to her saying that he had been thinking the whole matter over and now he was convinced that the soul did live after death it was too late her keen vision pierced through his ruse as it did when he brought the doctor who had diagnosticated her case as organic disease of the heart, and, after making him go over the facts of it again with her, made him declare it merely functional. To make an end of these records as to Clemens' beliefs, so far as I knew them, I should say that he never went back to anything like faith in the Christian theology, or in the notion of life after death, or in a conscious divinity. It is best to be honest in this matter. He would have hated anything else, and I do not believe that the truth in it can hurt anyone. At one period he argued that there must have been a cause, a conscious source of things, that the universe could not have come by chance. I have heard also that in his last hours or moments he said, or his dearest ones hoped he had said, something about meeting again but the expression, of which they could not be certain, was one of the vaguest, and it was perhaps addressed to their tenderness out of his tenderness. All his expressions to me were of a courageous renunciation of any hope of living again, or elsewhere seeing those he had lost. He suffered terribly in their loss, and he was not fool enough to try ignoring his grief. He knew that for this there were but two medicines, that it would wear itself out with the years, and that meanwhile there was nothing for it but those respites in which the mourner forgets himself in slumber. I remember that in a black hour of my own, when I was called down to see him, as he thought from sleep, he said with an infinite and exquisite compassion, "'Oh, did I wake you? Did I wake you?' Nothing more. But the look, the voice were everything, and while I live they cannot pass from my sense. End of chapter eight